Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 286. They would say, we always want things done this way. Things need to be in the right size container, and they need to be stored the right way, and they need to be labeled, and then there's no... There aren't enough containers. There's not any tape. There's no Sharpies. Like, it's just... There's the idea about how you want things to be, and then there's the actual which I guess is, you know, kind of the leadership part. And there's the management part of actually making sure that it's possible for your staff to do that thing that you want them to do. So if you want the trash room to be clean, then make sure the trash room is accessible and well lit and easy to use. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest, as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Are you tired of placing orders after a long day at the restaurant only to have them come in wrong on the day of delivery? Perhaps you're still doing inventory with paper and pencil. Maybe the sound of cutting labor costs is appealing. If you're interested in five times fewer order returns, two times faster order placements, and $2 saved on labor costs for each order, then you've got to head over to www.bluecard.com and sign up today. Many thanks and happy ordering from Bluecart. Hiring a consultant to train your staff and to improve your restaurant can be expensive. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just get advice from world champion baristas and leading restaurant consultants without spending thousands of dollars? Tipsy believes you should have the chance to learn new skills whenever you need to, which is why they have hundreds of hospitality courses available for only $9 a month. To give you a little something extra, as a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can also get 50% off your first month. All you gotta do is Click the tipsy banner in the show notes. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Brendan VC. Chef Brendan VC, tell me you're feeling unstoppable today. I am feeling unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I'm so happy to get you on the show, Chef. It feels like the universe has been like drawing you to me the past couple of months. You just keep on showing up. Uh, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that later. But let me just give the uh, listeners an aerial view of who you are and where you come from. So uh, upon graduating the University of Virginia, Chef Brandon Vesey found himself serving as an officer in the U.S. Navy. Since finishing his service in 2005, his nose has been to the grindstone, growing and developing as a professional chef. In 2014, he opened his second restaurant, The Jornery, located in Newmarket, New Hampshire, and he's crushing it. Uh, when he's not leading his team at The Jornery, he serves as an adjunct hospitality professor at the Great Bay Community College in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and he also serves as a local leader for Chef's Collaborative. Chef, this is just a huge aerial view of who you are, uh, where you come from. I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. I can't wait to learn more. But before we really dive in and learn more about you, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Well, I like to say make the right thing easy um, when I'm thinking about my staff. Mm. So... Um, or anybody, if you have a, you know, a sous chef who's trying to plan something for line cooks or a line cook who's trying to teach a dishwasher or something. If you, our job as managers and as leaders, I think is to make the right choice, the right, whatever it needs to be, uh, easier. Mm. So make the right thing easy. Something I like to say. 
And what's like one thing we can do in our restaurants? Uh, one simple thing we should all be doing to make the right thing easier. Give me an example. Well, I think some things are really small. Like um, I've worked at plenty of places and some of them, you, you, <laughs> they would say, we always want things done this way. Things need to be in the right size container and they need to be stored <laughs> the right way and they need to be labeled. And then there's no, there aren't enough containers. There's not any tape. Mm. There's no Sharpies. Like it's just, um, there are, there's the idea about how you want things to be. And then there's the actual, which I guess is, you know, kind of the leadership part. And there's the management part of actually making sure that it's possible for Mm. your staff to do that thing that you want them to do. So if you want the trash room to be clean, then make sure the trash room is accessible and well lit (laughs) and easy to use. I love it. And I I feel like you're touching on such a great point. And I mean, we hold our people to such high expectations. Sometimes we think maybe just holding them to those expectations is all it takes, but we need to enable them to to do the job we expect of them. That means giving them the the tools they need, giving them the resources, the the knowledge, the the culture, the atmosphere, all these things contribute to, uh, you know, making it, you know, doing the right thing or making it easy to do the right thing. I love it. Great way to get this started. And uh, I feel like the world, Brendan is drawing us together because I I recently did a post where uh, Evan Mallet uh, you know I said who's who's one person you admire in this industry and just think is just doing great things and you respect as a mentor as a professional uh, he he tagged you in that response and uh, I ran into one of my past professors at hospital uh, Great Bay Community College a hospitality professor she was telling me I need to connect with you and I keep on seeing on social media your name just keeps popping up I had to get you on the show so. Um, here you are. I'm pumped to have you. Uh, tell me real quick, what's your why? What's what's your purpose? Why why do you do what you do? Why are you in this industry? Uh, well, I've always loved to cook, and um, you know, when I was in college, I I I had an ROTC scholarship. I had a plan for what I was going to do after college, and um, you know, while I was taking some challenging courses, I was also working in a restaurant. And I kept. Mm-hmm liking it more and more and more. And I found myself bringing home cookbooks and borrowing books. And um, when I should have been reading my schoolwork, I, you know, <laughs> if I start reading about Russian history, I'd fall asleep, but I could stay up until three o'clock in the morning reading, uh, you know, a book by Paul Bucos or something like that. Yeah. And I could you know, stay up all night and then get up at 6am and be ready to go the next day and was fully energized. And at the time, I guess I kind of thought of it as a distraction and something that I should work on. But then I realized that if this is what I really want to, want to do, then this is what I should do. Um, so cooking is definitely what, what pulled me in and probably what still keeps me the most excited. But, um, the more I worked and, and especially as I took on kind of management roles and, and gained mentors and things like that, I, uh, I realized that cooking is, it's not enough. Um, so that's when I started to try to get deeper into hospitality and realize that there's plenty of people who just want to cook, but if you just want to cook, then you're, you're a little limited, I think, in, in what you're going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I try to derive that that pleasure not just from what I can do in the kitchen, but from being able to get other people to do the same thing. Um, awesome. you if have- I hand someone a plate of food. Okay. Oh, I was gonna say, when did you when did you have this aha moment? Like, w- at what point in your career did you realize cooking wasn't enough? Um, well, I think probably when I was working at Street in okay. Portsmouth. Um, I mean, Street's a a big big animal and it's very very busy yeah and there are lots of cooks and a lot of them are, are quite young and a lot of them it's their first uh first job ever or first cooking job certainly and um when you're serving lunch and dinner seven days a week you you can't be there all the time mm. and um and you certainly can't cook 
uh, everyone, or if not even everyone, you can't cook most of the food. Mm-hmm. Um, so deriving that pleasure from, uh, the, the guest experience, um, as opposed to what I can do. So say if I prepare, I, I would believe this is uh, you know, a little bit of chef, uh, uh, bravado or whatever, but, um, I believe that if I cooked your burger at street, it's probably a little bit better than if one of the cooks cooked it. However, if you get that burger and you have this great, amazing burger that's maybe exceeds your expectations, and then you come back and they can't produce that because I'm not there, mm. then we're not even meeting your expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So trying to get, and I learned a lot about this from Josh Lanahan, who owns uh, and operates Street, uh, about kind of toning yourself back as a chef and trying to cook the way that you're, the way that you expect your cooks to cook, um, not doing those little, not that you don't do it as best as you can, but you're, you're not trying to, um, to be different. You want you, consistency is a big challenge yeah, for a place like you're, that. You're shooting for a standard, not, uh, you know, I mean, I can't help we, listening to you talk. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to, I think it was the E-Myth where he's talking about how important, uh, standards are consistent or in how important consistency is. And he goes to like a, a, a hair, dresser and when he sits down they serve him a a bottle of wine and they they give him a uh you know uh like a treat like a a cookie i can't remember what it was and it was a great experience he went back another time still a great experience they offered him a beer and they they had like little mini sandwiches and it was a great experience but he was expecting to get that glass of wine and that you know that little treat like that cookie or whatever it was so it was still a good experience, but it wasn't the same experience. So he was kind of a little iffy, but he decided to go back again the third time. It went back the third time. He didn't get a drink or anything. And the point is like, it's not necessarily meeting the high standard, but people, you know, over time expect to get something the same way every time when it starts coming out differently. It doesn't matter if it's great both times. It's they, they want it to be the same. And you know, you're just touching on that. And I think it's a beautiful example of, uh, in a, a beautiful, well, one I think also when you shoot, when you, when you shoot for the stars, you, uh, you fail a lot more, mm. <laughs> um, which is, which is, is, is fine. Um, and it's part of learning and, and growing. But, um, if, uh, when you're the boss and you fail, you can, you're usually pretty good at hiding your failures or not serving them at least. Um, but, uh, when, if you're expecting your cooks to kind of shoot for the stars all the time um, and they're not as comfortable getting rid of or, or to have the ability, or you probably don't even want them hiding their failures because you want to know about it. Um, but uh, it's, it's about what you can do every day with the staff you have, with the equipment you have, and with the product you have. And you can slowly elevate that over time, but you can't do it overnight and you can't do it just when you're there. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's probably the most that I've grown. I love it. I, I do. And so just to kind of re- summarize, I asked you what your, your why was, what your passion was. Originally, it was to cook. But as you evolved as a professional, you realize that there's so much more that cooking is just the surface. It, it's really about providing the, that hospitality, that amazing service and being a leader and teaching these things to other people. Is that is that safe to say? Absolutely. Awesome. So um, when did you know? I mean, because it sounds like you were in college. You, you discovered that you had a passion for food. You decided to go into the military. At what point did you say to yourself, uh, I'm going to be a professional uh, chef or I want to be a restaurateur? When when did that idea come into your head? Was it while you're in the military after? Let's, let's kind of talk about your evolution. So I think it was probably I knew that I wanted to be a chef um, before I graduated from college. I was, uh, you know, I cooked uh, – 
this is the, the, the long version. I'll try to make it short. So I cooked in high school a little bit. I was a dishwasher and cooking was at a basic kind of big seafood burger place. Um, and uh, cooking was more fun than washing dishes. So we'd always all cooked at home and had to help. So I had an affinity for it and uh, get paid a little more to start cooking. So I started cooking on the side. And um, in the summers, I was working pretty much full time. And then before I graduated high school, I was, you know, had a, a pretty prominent position on the line working with people that were twice my age. Um, and, um, and I enjoyed it, but, uh, my colleagues didn't have the same trajectory as I did or the same opportunities that I did. Um, so I was expected to go to college and this would have been, you know, mid nineties where kind of the food thing was just kind of starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I certainly wasn't in the kind of, my parents were supportive and open to what I wanted to do, but it just wasn't, if you came home today and said, I'm going to culinary school, your parents would say, that's great. Let's research the best (laughs) culinary school and get you. And my parents would have said, um, no, you're not. Cause it was still like, if you were college bound, it wasn't like just another option. It was considered less than, which is great that it's no longer considered that. And it probably never should have been considered that, but that's how it was for me at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I was college bound. So I went to college. Um, and, uh, I went on an ROTC scholarship. My dad was in the Navy. Um, it's something I always planned to do. Um, I actually thought I was going to be a pilot at the time. Um, and then the first time I went up in a small airplane to start like this kind of like immersion into training to see if I wanted to do that, I hated everything about the experience. Um, <laughs> I'm, I didn't I'm laughing because like I, I can relate. I can relate because I was a commercial yeah. pilot. But um, yeah, keep going. Yeah, you were a pilot. Yeah, so I, I got in there and I just I hated it. Um, I didn't like anything about it. So then I said, well, if I'm not going to be a pilot, um, I guess I'll, I'll drive ships. So I chose to be a service worker officer. Okay. Um, which gave me the shortest year commitment to repaying my education. Okay. Um, but I also knew that the leadership challenges and the training I would get in the Navy would, um, would help me as a chef. I mean, a lot of kitchen stuff originally was built around military systems to begin with anyways. That's why we call it a brigade. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I got to travel a little bit. I got, you know, a decent amount of responsibility as a young, young person. Um, you get punctuality and all that stuff drilled into you. You oh, know, yeah. you're not that 35 year old who can't get to work on time. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I did that. And then I guess, uh, but while I was in college, I guess I, I kept working at a catering company. So like, Oh, this is cool. I can cater whenever I want to cater and I don't have to be tied to a schedule. And then I was going to be a waiter and I got there and the guy said, uh, I looked at your resume. There were probably a hundred waiters and this huge big chef, uh, comes walking out of the kitchen and yells my name to the hundred of us that he's going to, you know, train on this event. And, um, and I don't know what's going on. It's my first event. And he says, you have kitchen experience. And I said, yes. And he said, the kitchen pays $5 more an hour. Do you want to come work with us? So I got pulled back into it. Um, that catering company closed. They recommended me to go meet this other guy. And I went and met, uh, my very first, uh, I guess, restaurant mentor, uh, named Dave Simpson, who has recently passed away, but I'm um, at the CNO restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's the first time I met cooks who were like me. Mm-hmm. They'd, um, you know, they were interested in cooking, but not just because it was the only choice they had because they loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just, they weren't living on the fringe of society. They were fully involved in their passion and what they loved to do. And um, they thought about how food tied into cooking and uh, into art and music and the environment and, um, history and all these things. And I just, I, I fell in love with it. And I knew at that point that 
when I had finished my obligation uh, to the Navy, I wanted to be a chef. And how much of if how much of this experience of being surrounded by like-minded people really shaped who you are today? If you didn't have that experience, do you think you would be where you are today? Um, no, I doubt. It. I think I would be a different person. For one mm-hmm. thing, I think I. I mean, part of it was my, was my age. I guess I was twenty. I turned twenty-one when I was there. Okay. Um, and so it was, it was the end of college, and that's also when I met my wife. But I think um, if I had met my wife during our first, second year of school, we probably wouldn't have um, hit it off. And that's not because she changed. I think I changed a lot. Okay. Um, and I kind of finding that thing that you like and that drives you and makes you passionate about your life and the world and everything else, I think it, it really, really changes you. I'm not really oh, yeah. friends with a lot of the people I was friends with before that point in my life, but the people I met after that and during that point, I'm, I'm, I'm tied to forever. Um, but just so I think, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. I was just going to say one thing that I just really want to make sure we take away from this part of the story is that if you're truly passionate about this industry and you love what you're doing, you love to cook, whether it be front of house, back house, serving people or cooking in the back, if you really love it, surround yourself with other people who really love it because you're going to be the average of the five people you surround yourself with and you will never reach your full potential if you're with people who just don't love it like you do. You've got to surround yourself with other passionate people if you really want to be successful. And you're a beautiful example of that, Chef. Yeah, and I think that's hard for us as – I mean, this is part of the reason that us as chefs, why we do things like – go to other people's kitchens mm-hmm. and um, help with a project or uh, Evan Hennessy runs stages projects or chefs collaborative or all these things, because as an, uh, an independent operator, the, the economics just aren't, aren't really there for day to day work. Um, I mean, you can find people at all levels that are just as passionate, but they're um, they're hard to find. And often their life is going to change over time and they're going to need more resources, which mm-hmm. means they're If you can't afford to expand then they're going to have to move on. Absolutely. Um, and so I think it is important to find those people and to find those things that really charge you up. I and mean, when I go to the, the chef collaborative holds a summit about every 18 months or so, um, the last one was in New York and it's two and a half days. And, um, not only do you have incredible opportunities to meet and talk to people that you would probably not otherwise get to speak to, but, um, you just come back. So energized this mm-hmm. idea that, that all this stuff you're doing all year long, where it feels like, you know, nobody really cares that you're spending more on, pumpkins because you care about where they come from or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But then you realize there's people all around the country who, who do care mm-hmm. um, and that it all kind of comes to this cumulative head over time. Um, and which is, is really inspiring. So finding those things that, that really turn you on and keep you going, I think is important because oh, yeah. um, it's a, it's a slog and it's an exhausting industry yeah. and we don't have weekends and we don't have our nights at home. And so. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the rewards of this industry are very emotional, very experiential. And uh, you, you need to create those experiences for yourself. You need to stay inspired. You need to remind yourself every day why you got into it in the first place, because it will consume you if you if you just don't reconnect with, you know, that why that purpose, that drive that you had in the very beginning. I love it. Great advice, chef. Um, so. I kind of want to paint a picture of, you know, how you evolved in, you know, what your first experience. So in 2000, uh, see, it was 2007 you opened your first restaurant, Boots? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, was, I was really young. Um, take us through that experience of, like, who, like, how it, the idea came into mind and how you were collaborating with other people and how you got the capital and what the, how that all played yeah. out. So, um I was, my wife was attending law school at the time at William & Mary, which is in 
uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, and I was working for a very talented uh, restaurateur named David Everett, um, who now owns, man, probably half that town. Um, but at the time, he had just left and opened his, uh, he'd opened this place called the Blue Talent Bistro that was a classic French bistro. Okay. Um, and uh, I was a line cook there, and that was my first job after the Navy. I just walked in, and I said, this is, you know, a busy, bustling, classically French restaurant. I think it's where I should start. Um, my other training had all come from, you know, books and others. But this is my first, like, full-time. I'm going to delve into this. And um, Got it. I worked there for about a year. Um, things were going great, and I was I was, was pretty happy. But then uh, my two uh, best friends from high school at the time were running a record store in Norfolk, Virginia, which is about an hour southeast of Williamsburg. And um, they were running this kind of uh, modern, huge space downtown, holding live shows, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. And um, they had a little cafe in there and they were serving coffee drinks and um, smoothies. And then I started making soup and stuff for them. And then um, we were just kind of trying out different things and we were all young and, and nobody had any money. Nobody was making any money. So it didn't really matter. Um, and then, uh, at the, they started getting in trouble for holding shows, uh, cause they weren't supposed to be having concerts there. And then, um, then they realized that the only way we we're ever going to make any money, uh, because the record industry was, was falling, mm -hmm. uh, was to people love their space and love the experience, but they didn't want to buy anything. Mm. Um, so, they said, well, we need to hold legit shows with alcohol. And in Virginia, the only way to get an alcohol license pretty much is to have a restaurant. It's really hard to open up a, just a straight rock club. Got it. So they said, we're going to try this new model. We're going to open up a restaurant. Ah. That's going to be, you know, a restaurant during the evening for dinner. And then at night, we're going to take tablecloths off and we're going to hold like serious, uh, rock shows. Nice. And, um, they said, do you want to do this? And I was like, well, of course I want to do this. Um, you know, you're my best friends and I'm, you know, my wife's in law school. I've kind of got these two years before she graduates that I can do. She's really busy. If I have to commute, we don't have kids yet. Like mm -hmm. let's, let's go for it. Yeah. So, um, so we did it. Um, the capital mostly came from, uh, one of my friend's, uh, fathers who'd recently been pretty successful in what he was doing and believed in what we were doing. And he taught us a lot about kind of business and, and why we did things the way we did and, and probably wished we had been a lot more intentional than we were. But, um, we did it kind of all on a string in the beginning. We built the place. We, you know, we found an old space that needed some, some work and, and we put papers up, didn't get too many building permits and just started doing stuff, um, on our own and hoping, you know, to ask forgiveness instead of permission. Um, <laughs> and, um, for the most part it, it worked. I think it was a little, uh, they wanted it to just kind of be like basic food to go with their club idea. They weren't fully immersed in food yet, but I was, I was fully into local and, uh, the kind of good food revolution that's happened that was happening then mm -hmm. or still is happening. And, um, so I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do a real restaurant because the only way we can afford local is to be, uh, higher end. I don't want to just do burgers and fries. So we've eventually chose the name, the boot, um, based on kind of the double between Italian and, um, and kind of rock and roll, okay. um, punk or whatever. So the restaurant was, a classic Italian restaurant with uh, all Virginia sourced ingredients. Um, we had a pretty extensive Virginia and Italian wine list. Um, and um, it went pretty well for a little while, but I think uh, the people that got it, I think um, loved it. And we didn't know anything about, <laughs> or 
I guess our market research was limited to what okay. we wanted and what we thought, you know, our mm. friends wanted, not what the overall area wanted. Mm. I think now in that area, the restaurant would have been successful, but at the time it was, we were certainly reaching and we weren't ready to adapt to customer demands. Okay. Um, customer, you know, we, we just didn't think about that. We thought we've got the right idea. What we're doing is good. If you don't like it, you know, they go somewhere else. So um, if you could which, go yeah. back and with what you know now when you finish, what would you have done differently about that restaurant? Would you have done more market research or or what? I would have been certainly more flexible. Um, okay. I think also it's a problem with young chefs to say, so I was, you know, at the time I was obsessed with Italian cuisine and I did all this research and I was like, you know, the pasta shapes match the sauces. So each dish is a unique shape because that's how it is in Italy and the this shape goes with this sauce and that's why we're doing it this way. Mm-hmm. But people don't know that here mm-hmm. and they don't eat pasta as a mid course. They want it as their like entree. So they would say, well, I want, I don't want the crested de gallo. I want penne. And in my head, I'm thinking like, well, why do you care? Like they're the same, they're all the <laughs> same all pasta, flour and water yeah. <laughs> made by, if you close your eyes, you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, so I would say no, because mm-hmm. I was trying to offer this educational experience um, and get people to delve into what we were doing. But, um, that probably only lasted about the first year. And then after that, I kind of got over myself a little bit and said, you know what, who cares? Like they're in here, they want to spend money, make them happy. Um, mm-hmm. but there were things that we didn't budge on. Like, um, you know, the meat we use was really expensive. So we served small portions of it and people weren't used to that. Yeah. They weren't, um, but I also didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't prize that consistency in the same way I prized, you know, kind of rustic nature and uniqueness and the fact that like things are a little different sometimes. And, um, I didn't understand how that, uh, applied to whether or not someone came back or how they felt about the experience. I was more concerned with giving them that one, you know, exceptional experience. Um, but not, I wasn't focused on their second, third, fourth, 10th, 20th visit. Um, which is something that now I, I think a lot more about. Great lesson. Absolutely. So um, you guys lasted for two years. Uh, did you end up, did you leave after two years or did you end up closing the business? So I left after two years and the business uh, hung on for like another two. I think after that I left because my wife finished law school and the deal was, you yeah. know, wherever you get a job is where we're going to go. And that's how we ended up in New Hampshire. Awesome. Uh, cool. Uh, so you get to New Hampshire, uh, and you start working in some, uh, seacoast restaurants. And, uh, when you were taking these jobs, were you, did you have any direction, any intent, any vision or goal of where you wanted to end up? Uh, well, when I first moved here, I really wanted to, I thought I really wanted to work for like a nationally named chef, like somebody who, where I was going to go to, I don't know, like Aspen food and wine fest as their like as their worker or whatever. And I was going to do all these big chef events because that's what I thought I wanted at the time. Um, and then I, you know, I interviewed around a little bit. I got offered a few jobs. Things didn't really, I didn't really want to drive to Boston every day and, or, uh, or up to Maine. And so things didn't really quite, um, fall into place the way they wanted them to. But some of that shine kind of also through the process made me realize that these people are just like the people who are working day in and day out and not famous. Mm. Um, it's about the way they, they feel about what they're doing and some mm-hmm. things hit and some things don't hit and never really know why that happens uh, or you do know, but it's not, doesn't make the job fundamentally different. Um, so I ended up at victory, uh, working for Duncan Boyd uh, on state street, which, uh, that restaurant no longer exists. Uh, but, um, at the time it was one of the, the finer dining experiences in Portsmouth. Um, so I'd interviewed around and, um, 
he offered me a job and I liked him and he'd worked for, um, Jean-Louis Paladin and Patrick Clark and, um, Jasper white. So he had kind of, he was kind of my connection to that bigger mm-hmm. chef world that I've been reading about. Cause he'd worked directly for these people. So even if I wasn't going to work directly for them, I could work for someone who had. All right. Um, and so, so that's what I did. Awesome. So, um, when you're working for these people, uh, were you just looking to get a job at the time or did you have the intent to network to, to grow as a, a chef? I mean, did you have a vision of where you wanted to be, say, you know, uh, five years later, uh, that's when you opened your second location, which was the joinery. Like, did you have a, a plan then, or when did that plan start to form for you? So I had a plan from the time that I, when I got out of the Navy, they make you take this, this class, anyone who's getting out of the service called TAP transition assistance program. And, okay. um, they make you do a plan. Um, and they don't care what it is, but they want you to sit down and actually do it. Um, and much like anything else, once you have to sit down and write out a plan, it, it does formulate things, whether I think you things kind of end up happening on that plan, whether you think they really will or not. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I said, well, I'm going to be a chef. And, um, you know, people I was in the Navy with said, you're crazy. Like they're all going to business school. They're going to go be like military MBAs and work in corporate jobs, make a lot of money. And I said, well, I don't, I don't care. This is what I want to do. So right. I said, I want to be a head chef of, I want to have my own restaurant or be an executive chef by the time I'm 30. And I want to own a restaurant by the time I'm 40. I thought those were realistic Ooh. kind of timelines. Um, and okay, so, so, so that already run let's a kitchen. pause real yeah, quick. So this was in 2005. You graduated uh, yeah. Na- or you graduated. You finished your service in the Navy in 2005. Uh, that's when you wrote your vision of where you want to be. You set goals for yourself. You said, by the age of 30, I want to be an executive chef. By the age of 40, I want to be an owner. Now we're in 2009. So four years later, how old were you at this time? Uh, so in 2009, I guess I was, I had just turned 30. I was 31. Ooh, so see, um, that's so powerful. Do you think if you didn't write this down in the back of the, your mind, was this kind of haunting you a little bit? Like I got to get my shit together. I need to become the executive chef. Like what was going on there? I mean, you already kind of did know, it I with guess, the boot, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I had done it, but I hadn't done it. I knew what my, because I had done it when I wasn't prepared. I think I knew what my kind of gaps were and I was looking to fill those in. All right. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I need more high-end experience. I need more um, butchery and, and sourcing and costing and I need and consistency. Um, so working in those, like, big, busy places um, like the Blue Talent Bistro and, mm-hmm. like, Street, while that may not be the kind of food you eventually want to do, um, it does teach you a lot about how to do it and how mm-hmm. you're going to break that problem down. Um, and... Um, and I would consistently look for things that were big line cook challenges. I mean, we have this kind of part of us as a chef. That's like this dual thing where, and it starts to fade with age, which um, I think if you talk to some people who are 10 years older than me, I think you have recently though. I think like that's their big lament is like, I'm just not as fast as I used to be. And they know it and they're, they're smart enough and they're good enough at it to hide it. But um, being that being the best line cook in the restaurant is an important thing to two chefs and um and then you have to find a way to lead after that's no longer true so i just want to uh rewind a little bit you said you're trying to find line cook challenges what do you what do you mean by that give us an example so we can uh then take this example and maybe try to apply it in something we're doing in yeah. our restaurants well so like a, a, a there are jobs that are easy and there are jobs that are hard um and that uh, you know a, a complex menu that's done with very few people um with exacting standards is going to be a big line cook challenge. Um, you know, there are places where 
it's really busy. And the minute everything comes in, it's called order fire. So the stuff, the food comes in and everyone just makes it as fast as they can and puts it up under a heat lamp. And when the stuff's all ready, it goes out together. Um, and that may be busy and challenging, but it's not the same as then if you say, okay, well, I figured out how to do that. I, I know I can remember my items and make them all really quickly. Now I'm going to work at a place like victory where we have, you know, there's eight different proteins that all cook at different rates. They're all being requested at different temperatures. They each have, um, you know, two to three accompaniments as far as sides go. And then there's also like a sauce and a relish and a certain plate and a garnish, a couple of garnishes. And so you're starting to now time out all of these other things that have to go together and making sure that it's not okay for something to sit in under a heat lamp for three minutes. Um, so the steak and the fish and the vegetables and everything has to be done at the same time so that that four top has an exceptional experience. Mm. Um, and then as soon as their stuff's going out, the next table's going up. And, and in, in the meantime, you're firing appetizers and all that stuff. So <laughs> finding a way to keep those things straight in your head and do it at a higher level okay, um, where you're not holding things, where you're, everything's the timing becomes important and you're, your brain has all these clocks that are going at the same time. And, um, and you start realizing the other triggers, like the sounds that the things make in the oven when they're done and the, the way things look on the grill. And so that you you kind of start moving without thinking. Um, but it takes repetition oh, yeah. and thousands or at least hundreds of hours to figure it out. Yeah. I really just want to shine a light on, on what you're doing here. And so often on the show, one of those habits, one of those characteristics of the successful people we talk to like yourself is that they never settle for good enough. They never, there's no point of, okay, we got there. Uh, let's just stay here. It's always, how can we do this a little bit you know, more efficient? How can we do this a little bit more uh, better? Or how can we, you know, what can we do to make this situation better? You're always challenging yourself to find a hole, to close a gap, to do something just a little bit better. And you, and you did you, was this a personal challenge or was this like a team challenge? Would you, would you find the, the objective and share it with a team and do it as a, a, a team? Or was this just for yourself? Um, well, I think it depends on the job. I think at some places it was, it was, it was certainly the, the team. Like when I worked for the, uh, after victory, I went to the hundred club. Um, and I worked for Mark Siegel, who is a very talented local chef runs, uh, Tino's now in uh, yep. Hampton. Um, and he, uh, for one thing, he gave me a job in February, uh, when victory kind of closed abruptly and it was winter time and I had just moved to a new area. I didn't know anybody. And, um, I was like, shit, I need a job. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's the middle of winter and I don't know anybody. And uh, everyone's like staffing down. I need to be staffed up. Um, so I'm always, I will always be appreciative to Mark for taking a chance on me then. But um, he was, you know, Mark was huge into the, the, the team thing. Um, it wasn't just about what he could do. It was about what we could all do mm. together. Um, and, uh, and he really pushed us to all work together. And, and we had a small, you know, considering the amount of food that place puts out, we had a, a pretty small kitchen, a small line where everyone could just, you know, uh, you reach over and you help the cook next to you. It wasn't like mm -hmm. this, uh, I'm trying to get ahead. So if somebody else screws up, that helps me. It was never like that. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, it was a, an incredible experience. And that part, I think was certainly like a team thing. like, Hey, maybe we can change this and let's all do this. And then Mark would kind of take our ideas and decide whether or not they made sense with the overall concept. Um, and with what he was trying to do at the time. And, um, and I try to do that now with, with my guys. I say, you know, what do you guys want to, what do you want to cook? Like, what do you want to try? What do you feel like you need to learn? Um, you know, one of my guys said, I, I don't feel like I know how to make, it's like, I think I have a gap in, um, sausage making. So we bought a sausage stuffer so we could start, 
um, producing some different kinds of sausages. And, and the first ones probably will just get served to the staff or they'll be our little experiments. But, um, but it was something that none of us had spent a, a ton of time on. Um, so I was like, well, let's, let's do this. Let's try it out and let's let you guys, you know, move forward in what you want to do. I love it. And that right there is the difference between being a leader and being a mentor. I mean, leaders do it right. They set the example. They hold the standard. Mentors then turn around and are there for the people that are going through what they once went through. And they empathize with what it's like to learn. And they, they push you along and they, and they pick you up and they, they give you the tools you need. And, and I, I love that you, you're always pushing your people. And I really want to spend some time talking about um, – the experience of what it was like uh, from the transition to street to the joinery and uh, what it was like to open your second restaurant versus opening your first restaurant, what you did differently and how you're better now because of what you learned in the second opening. Uh, well, the biggest thing with the transition for me was I knew we were going to be much smaller and much less busy, okay. um, especially initially um, going you know to new market from, you know, a place like street. That's probably a, you know, a $3 million business now. Um, versus opening something like joinery, which was, didn't even quite do half a million in its first year. Um, so the scale changed a lot. So why did you um, want something smaller? What was the reason for that? What was the, the what I, you well, I went to my first chef's collaborative summit and I was in my head. I was like, I have to do something, um, locally sourced. I had been doing a little bit at street, but it just wasn't the right model. It was too big. Um, the price point was too low. Um, and, uh, I, I really wanted to do something um, with local sourcing where I was not, not just filling in products as I could, but like actually letting what we produced in our area drive um, what we served so and how why. Does, how does having a small venue enable that? Uh, well, I think for one thing, you can't change the menu all the time when you have a big, busy restaurant. You need more staff. Training lead time takes longer. You can't uh, – printing, all that stuff. You can't just – um, and, and if you're, it's okay to only be a place someone goes once a month, but if someone goes there three times a, a week and they expect the same thing, then you can't just decide that you're not going to have tomatoes because it's not tomato season in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and you just don't have the time to focus on an individual, um, guest experience as much. You're, you're focused much more, much more on that consistency level. Um, and, uh, trimming kind of around the edges instead of really getting to the, the heart of the, of the, of the matter, which is um, environmentally and economically was really important to me to say, no, this is like, we're not, I don't want to do that anymore. I only want to serve um, this kind of meat or whatever. I don't want to see that volume of chicken. Uh, Cause it's not, it's not, it's not realistic. Um, and, and, you know, I, I go back and forth to that over time and there's other things I might do in the future that are much look a lot more like street. Um, but I wanted something like joinery for me to grow as a cook um, and say, I really want to let the seasons and the farmers and their product drive my daily activity. Um, and it still stresses me out big time. I still have, you know, I make way more phone calls than, uh, than I would like to, you know, I deal with way more vendors than I would like to, but the, the individual experiences are, um, they're valuable and they're, they're important. Um, and it's not that I don't want to deal with the vendors. It's that I don't have time. If I could just deal with the vendors, <laughs> I would be thrilled to spend my time on the phone with farmers every day and going out to farms and picking things up and visiting people. And, 
Um, I've got to do a, a, a quick second to, to mention Blue yeah. Cart, which is the sponsor for this episode. You should check out Blue Cart. Uh, it will make your ordering way easier. Uh, just a quick plug, uh, but I'll I'll shoot I'll share a link with you afterwards. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so that's really what I wanted to do with joinery, and then I also wanted. I was I'd been in the Seacoast for. I guess six, five, six years at that point. And, um, I felt like I'd done a lot of, um, networking and I knew everybody and I, I kind of put my, uh, all these little side things where I went and worked in someone else's kitchen or, or did a dinner or or met people or whatever charity things I did, whatever it was, they were all kind of coming to a point where I said, you know, I'm gonna, um, I think I can do this now. And, um, I, I, I want to do it. Um, mm. and I wanted to learn more about the rest of the restaurant as well, um, to run the whole thing. Um, and then when, uh, I knew that Evan and Denise were involved, um, from black trumpet, I had always wanted to work, um, with Evan, but it had never really quite worked out when he needed a person. I either wasn't available or, um, he was looking, I was maybe overqualified or needed more financially. Let's paint the picture a little bit. So, um, 2013 going to 2014 or it was 2014. How did this opportunity present itself to you? How did you know that there was a restaurant opening in new market? And how did you, I mean, the way I understand it, maybe there was a restaurant already there and changing. Was this uh, an exit strategy for Evan that you saw as an opportunity to get into a space at, you know, a good deal? Like what was going on? Like what, what was, well, I think it was a lot of, a lot of different things. And, um, some of it is a little contentious with people, other people in our community, but there was a restaurant there that was, um, that wasn't working. Um, I had a relationship with one of the investors already, uh, as a friend and as a coworker, uh, to my wife. Um, and, uh, he had opened the the first restaurant in that location. Um, and they were looking for a change. Um, and, uh, Evan and Denise had come in and they were involved in the previous restaurant in trying to help, uh, along the way. Um, I think it's kind of an expansion strategy for them to see how it felt to be doing two things and, and to be in two different towns and whether or not that was something they liked or thought they could do. So um, there was a location, uh, I believe it was called Poppers. Yeah. Evan, in, did he move in but after that location was already, did he take over that location or was this his concept? Evan, no, it wasn't his concept. It okay. was uh, a different chef who was running the place. And then, um, but as, as most of us know, as chefs, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, especially if you just, if your focus is the food, mm. try to run the business as well. So Evan and Denise came in as kind of managers to try to help run Got it. Um, the concept. And then when it, when it became clear that that concept wasn't going to work anymore, uh, the investors started looking for other options. Okay. And because I had a relationship with them and a relationship with Evan, it kind of all, after a lot of meetings, it kind of all fell into place that okay. um, I could go there. So I left street uh, and then we spent about six weeks, I think, turning that restaurant over, uh, which was really compressed. Uh, we didn't change a ton, but we changed enough. And we tried to spend as little as possible because these investors had already put in so much for their first restaurant. They weren't really interested in doing it all over again. Um, so we, we tried to open on a string um, with what we already had around and we went for it and um you know, Evan and I sat down over lots and lots of late night meetings and I would say, you know, I want to do Southern. It's where I'm from. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't think it's represented up here. 
and it's also having a moment nationally. So um, I want to do it. And uh, he agreed and he'd spent some time um, in Virginia as well when he was young. And uh, so we kind of sat down and and, um, I said, this is what I want to do. And he helped me tweak my menu. Um, But certainly the thing that I did the most um, and that I still learned from and I still write out when we're writing new menus is um, kind of workload on a piece of equipment, which is not you know, sexy or fun or chef things. But, um, you know, people joke about like, well, the grill guy's buried. Well, the grill guy being buried is one thing, but if the grill guy can't physically put all the meat Mm. that he needs to cook on the cooking service you give him, then you need to have fewer grilled items. Mm -hmm. Um, so I never did the, I try to balance the, the load, not just between, I always did it person to person. Like, well, so this, this station's going to do this, this station's going to do that. And I think this is going to be a balanced workload. And then, if we get into the menu and something's much more popular, then I'll move a dish from, you know, maybe the the grill guy has to do this one cold dish, even though it's technically should be on garbage or whatever. But um, I, now I balance it more for like equipment. And I say like, well, I, I would love to do that dish, but we can't do that. Um, we only have a six burner range. Um, so we can't have most kitchens that have more than six burners. You have two stoves that, you know, 12 burners or at least 10 and they'll put, you know, a blanch pot on the stove to cook pasta or vegetables or whatever to order. Um, we don't have the room for a blanch pot, so we don't do that kind of pasta. Okay. So instead we do gnocchi or something like that, where it's something we can cook in advance and then sear in a pan. Which I actually um, had last night and it was amazing. FYI, just good. quick plug good. real quick. Like awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, what we really try to dive into is, you know, uh, why you made the decisions you made. And um, I don't want to suggest that this was an exit strategy for some people. Things weren't working out. They needed they wanted to shake um, maybe this project that just wasn't right for them at the time. Uh, Was that an opportunity? Did you you get a good deal because you were a solution for these people who decided that they didn't want anything to do with this restaurant anymore? Is that was that in your favor at all? Would you say? Well, I mean, I think that, I don't know. Are you talking about the first time around or after Evan and Denise left? I guess the point I'm trying to make is many times when you want to open a restaurant and you're trying to do it on a shoestring budget and you're trying to be smart about how you spend it. If you just keep your ear to the industry and you pay attention to what's going on, sometimes people, they try a concept, it doesn't work out, and now they're left with this massive expense that's just not doing anything for them and they just want to walk away from their problem. And that can be an opportunity for you to walk into a situation where you have all of your equipment, you have the location, everything's there, it's kind of turnkey, and you you just plug your idea your your concept in and you can save a ton of money was that going on in the back of your mind or was it yeah absolutely okay. i mean yeah. i think it was and also having investors who um who could afford it in the first place mm. i mean i think a lot of people get into restaurants that are they're they're undercapitalized from the beginning awesome. um and i already had i had a kid at this point this is, another one on the way i was yeah. like i gotta get paid i can't like i can't accept i mean there are people who are younger or who don't have financial responsibility that i have who they can accept a kind of crazy financial situation that's a much bigger risk. And if it pays off, there's going to be a much larger reward. So I'm not going to have a huge reward at joinery, but I will always have my salary. Mm. Um, And in the beginning, that was insured by investors who could afford it and said, you know, you're going to get paid. You can 
trust that you're going to get paid. We may not get paid, but you're going to get paid. Yeah. Um, and you do the work and you get paid. I just want to um, point out. I, I would also encourage any chef, you know, if you don't own something and someone doesn't pay you, you should be, uh, <laughs> you should be out the door <laughs> the next minute. Awesome. Cause advice. it's not going to get any better. Awesome advice. Really great stuff. This is the, the beautiful stuff I love to get on the show. And just two things to really point out here. Uh, you know, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be up against it. Cause you know, we don't do this for the money. We do it because we love it, but you need the money. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're going to be forced to make decisions that aren't right for you that don't ring with your, you know, your, your heart, your soul, because that's, what's going to drive you. That's what's going to get you out of bed every day. You don't want to lose that foot ground. So Rest on your loyals. Get experience in the industry like Brendan did. He he worked. He 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 grew as a professional, and then he an opportunity presented himself itself to him because of the reputation he made for himself as, as because he had the, the experience, the knowledge. And um, you don't have to just go out there and start from scratch and build this restaurant. That's expensive. People. There's turnover in this industry every day. Restaurants go up for sale. People are looking to get rid of things. Like you can get a deal. Just take your time and be smart about it. I feel like you you did that. You're a great example of that. And the other thing, you focused on impact the second time around. You wanted to do something that meant something to you, that sang to your heart, and that was smaller in a, a space that was more intimate, where you could have better relationships with your your people and, and do the kind of cooking that made you light up inside. And do you think that that uh, that um, I guess plan or this this doing this has had a impact on where you are now and how things are going. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think I think I also knew that if I, I mean, I, I knew what I was looking for, and I think also it's a hard thing for people to do, but to write down kind of what you actually want, um, and and then eventually to use that in the way that you make decisions, um, because you get offered with a, a new. <laughs> if you considered every proposal that was given to you. Once you're running a business, you would never get anything done besides <laughs> considering proposals. Yeah. Um, you get bombarded with things all the time and bombarded with silly ideas. You know, people want, Oh, do you want to cater this event? Well, sure. You hear in your head, you hear catering and you think catering means big money. Then you, you got to cut to the chase and find out like, you know, is this what you do? Can you do it? And if you can't do it, just say no and stop wasting your time and their time. Mm. Um, and the same with marketing proposals. If someone wants me to do, you know, I get a phone call and they say, Hey, you want to buy the, you want to do the back of cover, of this magazine this month, it's $5,000. Well, no, I can't, I couldn't, I'm, we're never going to do a $5,000 marketing campaign. <laughs> it will never happen for businesses of our size. So I don't have to waste my time on that. Yeah. Um, but I do think that kind of knowing what you want and looking for this thing that you know, you need to do. So I, I knew if I didn't do a restaurant like joinery as a chef at some point in my life, I knew I would regret it. So when the opportunity presented itself, I did it. Now I very likely will open eventually something that is, a lot more like street, something that's bigger and more casual and more financially lucrative because I got a life and I got kids and I mm -hmm. want them to go to college and do what they want to do. And I want my wife to have career flexibility and all these things that you do once you have a family. Um, so um, I, I ever, and everyone I worked for, you know, who had done these big, crazy, busy projects, they had done something else that really fed their, their passion. Yeah. They'd already accomplished that. Yes. And they said, okay, well now I want to do something that, um, that maybe is a little more lucrative, mm. um, or that is uh, a little more hands off because they were planning for getting older and mm. knowing that I can't maintain these hours forever. Yeah, um, I just want to know, chime. You don't want to miss everything, real quick, Chef, because I love what you're sharing with us. And just recently finished this book, Small Giants, where these great companies, massive companies, many of them I'm sure you heard of, like Danny Myers, Union Square Hospitality, and Ari Weinswags, Zingerman's uh, community of business. All these guys started off small. They chose to stay small yeah. because they wanted to focus 
on impact. When you stay small and you keep it manageable and you focus on doing a, an amazing, impactful job where you can impact your community, you, you can impact your guests, you can impact your employees, you can sp- spend time with them, evolve them, keep it manageable. Over time, you're going to grow your people. You're going to grow those relationships and you're going to provide a platform for yourself to expand because it's all about the people. You got to grow your people first. You got to grow those experiences first and provide opportunity and you're doing it the right way. You started small, you focus on impact and you grow with time. Uh, It doesn't happen overnight and you you will get burnt out if you try to go too big too soon and just focus on making the money because that's not what's going to, you know, that's, that's not what will, Focusing on the money won't make you the money, unfortunately. Um, exactly. And I think I can't say enough about Ari Weinswag from Zingerman's. I've had the fortunate pleasure to meet him a couple of times and read his books. And, um, you know, if I had no other attachments in my life, I would happily move to Ann Arbor mm. and do any job he asked me to do. Um, <laughs> but amazing. I'm never going to work for Ari Weinswag because I'm probably not moving to Ann Arbor. And as part of his stated goals, <laughs> what they do, they're not going to do anything outside of Ann Arbor. Um, he's very methodical about they expand, but they only expand in a certain way. And each business is its own small business and it has to meet the bottom line, but it also has to fulfill other goals. And if they don't have, you know, the only reason they open an ice cream place is because they have someone who already is in the organization who's making ice cream and doing it at above the level of what they need right now. And is displaying the business acumen to run their own thing. And they say, you should be in charge of this ice cream business. We're going to, we'll back you, but you, you're responsible. Mm. Um, and they gave them and the same culture. Uh, they they give them the same chest. Yeah. They, they figure out the formula. They implant. And you got to buy in, and if yeah. you don't want to buy in, then you don't do it. It's fine. Like, it, there's no hard feelings. But if you, if you don't want, like this is how we do this. You don't get to go into a place and say, uh, "I want to change." Uh, I, it's not fair for any. I mean, employee has to kind of realize what the culture is and say, "I want to be part of this culture, or I don't." And yeah. if you have enough employees and a, and a willing leader, you can change the culture over time. But um, Often, I think you have an employee who will kind of get into a job and thinking like, well, it's, it's pretty good, but I'd like, I prefer it to be like this. And they'll slowly over time, some people are very good at, at changing culture for the, um, not necessarily for the better. Um, and, um, uh, yeah. And I think Zingerman's is very, by being very intentional, they, they kind of build a wall against that. Yeah. Um, he, he put out a series. I think we can all learn a lot from him. Oh, yeah. We definitely can. The best part is you can get all of what he's learned. He's got a series, I think, uh, at least four books I can think of. Uh, it, one is, you know, an anarchist approach to building a uh, great business. Uh, and then there's, the second one is becoming being a better leader. Being a yeah. better leader and managing yourself is a third one. And then he also has a service standards, uh, which is a really super yep. easy read, which is uh, just packed full of great advice so uh he shares all of his information do check out those books i'll have the links in the show notes this is episode 286 so just head over to restaurant slash 286 chef we gotta get a quick failure from you and then bust out the speed round i just lost track of time i'm just loving this conversation yeah, yeah. so real quick what is one big failure you had in this industry one thing that was just you know a lesson learned and how are you better now and how did you get th- past that uh well i guess this is more of a uh a funny story, but I still think about it today. Um, I was doing a, at my first restaurant in the boot in Virginia, I was, we had this big, uh, private event. We were closed that night. And, uh, so we did a dinner for, I don't know, 70 people. And, um, the last course we served was a, um, a yogurt panna cotta with a sour grape, uh, reduction. That was this beautiful Virginia, uh, grapes that were super sour. And I made this great reduction. I was so proud of it. And I put it in a squirt bottle, um, and I hadn't labeled it because it was just for this one-time event. And I knew where it was. And uh, I got busy, and I was there by myself. I played all dessert. 
and I went and grabbed it and I grabbed the wrong squirt bottle and I put, uh, red, I put red wine vinegar on every single dessert that I had, <laughs> um, before, before the aroma of the vinegar started wafting up out of the restaurant. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a choice. No, the service had already started carrying them out. Um, <laughs> and so at that point there was kind of no turning back. And so I, uh, I think I told the head server kind of what was going on. And then I think I kind of shirked out of the restaurant and hoped that I wouldn't see anybody on the way out. Um, because I was, I was so embarrassed, but I still, I still can remember that feeling so well. Um, and how it kind of all came out of, uh, being understaffed, uh, not being prepared and not labeling something. And so, um, I think about that now. Um, I don't, I don't think I tend toward organization. So, um, I try to force myself to do it. And that feeling of how I felt that day, uh, kind of stays with me and it helps me as a, a motivator. So did, did the food actually make it to the table? Oh yeah, they ate it. And, uh, <laughs> I guess it technically still was a sour grape sauce. It just wasn't the sour grape sauce I intended to put on the food. So, um, you know, it wasn't a ton of vinegar. I think some people, some people even liked it, which I thought was weird. Um, would you have done, you know, it was the end of a long meal. Would you have so. done anything different about if knowing what you know now, would you have let that food go to the table? No. Well, I don't, I didn't know at the time how to like stop the servers. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was weirder to stop them mid pass and say, what, no, no, no. Which restaurant was this? At, but, uh, <laughs> this was at the boot, uh, okay. in Virginia. Um, uh, but also, you know, I think when I think back on it and try to kind of unpack that failure, I know that there were a lot of things that led to it. And some of them were on my own personal stuff, like being overtired and not putting the, you know, the time into yourself uh, because you're trying to work all the time. And you think because you think because you're there all the time, you're working all the time. And that's not necessarily true. Um, so segmenting your life and being intentional about your time management makes you less tired and it helps you be uh, sharper when you need to be sharp. Mm. And at that point in that night, I was not sharp and that's why i made that mistake um but no i would not i would certainly wouldn't do it again uh <laughs> if i had a, if i had thought better about it maybe i would have stopped and served the next table something else but um i just you know i think i had agreed to an event i didn't really want to do in the first place i uh hadn't done enough work to make sure it was all lucrative for us so maybe it wasn't worth doing anyways and so because of that i had staffed it with just myself i mean there were all these things that I can look back on this little failure that um, never really impacted the restaurant that much. Most people didn't care or they weren't coming back anyways because they were only there for this one time special event. They weren't our customers. Um, but you know, I, I learned a lesson. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of great lessons in here. I love how you pointed out the fact that you really need to get that rest. You need to be sharp. You need to be with it. And, and we do waste our time, you know, maybe getting involved in, after work events or, uh, you know, just not managing our time well and not getting enough, the, the rest we need, but also, you, you know, the importance of mise en place and taking the time to pay attention to the detail and to get organized. Because if in the situation where you're catering, you only have, you know, a limited amount of resources that you plan for to serve. So I'm sure even if you wanted to call that food back, you probably didn't have enough to do it again. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, no, I would have had to like wipe the plate, like yeah. drain the sauce and try to resauce it or something. I don't know what I, and, I think about all the things I could have done now, but at the time it was, uh, I, I was just overwhelmed and I thought, I, I, 
they're they're already eating it and like i've screwed up and that's just the way it is um you know and one one thought i had is you know if if you make a mistake um the power of fixing the mistake in front of the guests i mean some we want to be perfect and uh this isn't a uh a lesson from uh hari uh Papalaka, I can't, and I always miss to say his name right. Uh-huh. But he's out of Florida, and um, when when you can yeah. write the end of the story, when like Daniel Meyer says, if you make a mistake and you do something wrong, when you show people authentically how much you care about making it right, um, and you genuinely care, like people make mistakes, and it, it's going to be inconvenience. People will be unhappy, but when you when you're willing to go, you know, beyond anyone's expectation to to, to make it right, that's what wins people. That's what you know. People will notice that stuff, and. Um, would you have maybe? I mean, it's it's tough because it was catering, uh, and I know that you you can't you're kind of limited with your resources. But uh, would you have handled that situation any differently, knowing how important you know the guest experience is? Yeah, I mean, I guess I probably would have. Um, I don't know, taken the desserts back. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, done some found something else to serve. Um, done it all over again. Um, but I just you know. Um, now I focus more on being, we, we certainly still make mistakes, but, yeah. um, I think just like they say, as, as, uh, I think it's Ari's thing is that success means you get better problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't have problems. Mm-hmm. So, um, not that we're incredibly successful, but I think we're successful enough that we can kind of control when we make mistakes. Now they're much smaller mistakes because mm-hmm. the, the model is better to begin with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if the skin on that duck isn't quite crispy enough, that's not the same as serving someone the complete wrong thing that they don't want to eat. That's not part of their component of the dish. Um, it's more like, Hey, that could have been crispier. Um, and that's our mistake as opposed to, um, dumping vinegar all over someone's dessert you got you so. all right this has been awesome <laughs> we, we gotta take a quick break to thank our sponsor we're yeah. already at an hour i can't believe how fast time's going we're gonna bust out a fast speed round when we come back whether you're just getting started in the restaurant business or if you're a seasoned veteran there's always something new to learn that never ends <laughs> but what hasn't changed is the time you get to learn Tipsy has taken everything you need to know and put it in one easy-to-access location. With Tipsy, you can learn what you want, when you want, by accessing an incredible library of video courses on topics like food and beverage, service, marketing, and business operations. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything you need to run a successful restaurant. You can also use Tipsy as a staff training tool. Through the management platform, you can select the courses that matter to you and schedule them out to your employees in a few simple clicks. Individual memberships are only $9 a month, and as a restaurant's unstoppable listener, you receive an extra 50% off your first month. So what are you waiting for? For $4.50, you can have access to this incredible resource right now. Just find the Tipsy banner in the show notes. To all you restaurant owners and managers, I have a question for you. How are you communicating to place and receive orders? If you're still using email, fax, paper, and pencil, and you're tired of errors and the stress that comes with it, listen up, because I have a solution for you. 
Blue Cart, a back-of-house ordering application for the hospitality industry, is a one-stop shop for all of your back-of-house needs. Find yourself returning too many orders? Blue Cart users see five times fewer returns. Find yourself spending way too much valuable time placing orders? Blue Cart users place orders in half the time. Ever notice being way overstocked in inventory? Get this. The Blue Cart app reduces waste by over 52%. Maybe you've hired a staff member just to handle your ordering needs. Blue Cart will save you $2 for every order you place. How many orders do you place a week? Cha-ching! Sign up today at www.bluecart.com and upgrade the restaurant supplier relationship today. Many thanks and happy ordering from Blue Cart. So we are back. And the first question I have for you, Chef, what is an it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, I think, uh, being in- intentional and making decisions. Um, I, I like to think about what I want to do, but then once I've made the decision, I don't, I don't waver. Um, and so I think it, sometimes it seems like I'm making decisions very quickly, but often it's because I've already thought of, I've been thinking about them for a long time and then I can say, okay, let's do boom, 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 boom. Let's do all these things. Um, so being intentional about decision-making and then being willing to stick with the outcome of, uh, of what that decision is. Awesome. What is your biggest weakness? Um, I can be a little passive aggressive. Um, I don't love conflict. Um, so I can tend to avoid it, which, uh, isn't always for the best. Okay. And how, how are you, are you evolving? How are you addressing this issue? I try to talk about things that bother me um, with employees or, or vendors or anybody else um, in a, you know, non emotional way, but to still address them quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's hard because with, with, as a being a leader and a manager, you're trying to get the best out of your people. And sometimes you, you know that correcting someone right now in the middle of a busy service is not going to get the best out of them. Yeah. Um, if they're going to go into a funk for the next 15 minutes, because you've observed their personality, you know, that's what they're going to do. Then you have to wait. Uh, sometimes that's painful and you don't want to, you don't want to wait because everyone knows that abrupt quick correction is usually the quickest, most effective method to get someone to remember. But, um, but you have to, you still have to get through it. Um, so I, uh, I try to address things more quickly. Um, but I think, I don't know, I guess that'd be a question for my staff about how well I'm doing with it. Yeah. Well, just one quick thing. I, I can't remember where I heard this. Uh, it's a quote that goes something along the lines of all, mis- all, uh, all issues, all problems uh, result from poor communication. Um, so sometimes yeah. when, you, when you're angry, when something's not going away or you're passive aggressive, like you said, you, you, you communicate, you talk about it. Um, and you, instead of just blowing up, you seek to understand, then seek to be understood. And it sounds like how you are evolving. Like you're not so quick to anger. You're quick to more communicate what you expect and maybe what was going on. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I would, I would hope I'm, I'm better. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for leading others? Um, well, other than to make the, the right thing easy is to... Um, fairness, I think 
for some employees and especially as, as a parent, I see this, um, kids think of fairness as kind of a direct, uh, everyone gets the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, everyone gets treated the same and that's not real life. Um, and that's not even fair. Um, I think of fairness or equality as much more of a, uh, a, a communistic tendency of, uh, you know, I don't know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, um, where you have to give an employee what they need and you have to emotionally and financially, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same as what somebody else needs. Um, and you have to expect of them what they can produce. Um, and that means holding them to different standards. Um, and I think it's, it's hard because it doesn't quite seem fair, but, um, what's really not fair is when you know you could be performing better than you are, but because the people around you can't, you don't bother to do more. Um, that's when you really get, I think, into unfairness. Say that one more time for me. So if, if you are refusing to perform at a higher level because the people around you can't do it, um, because you think it's fair because you're producing what they're producing, um, that's fundamentally unfair, not mm-hmm. the idea that everyone should do the same or get the same. So how do you how do you manage that as a leader? How do you know when people are capable of more but they're holding back? And how how do you keep it um, – Civil. <laughs> well, in the kitchen, I think it's, it's easy. Well, I think it, it with with like uh, with prep and with cooking, it's it's a little easy uh, to kind of, you know, we have a list of these thirty things we have to do today, and there's four of us working, and someone's going to get ten things assigned to them, and someone's going to get three, um, and that's not necessarily because the three things are bigger projects. It's because I try to think about how long this is going to take me to do, and how long it can take someone else to do, and mm-hmm. so we break down prep in that way, and everyone's lists are, you know it's, it's public. Everyone sees what everybody else has to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think it shows someone who's younger and aspiring, like, well, man, how's he going to, how, how's, you know, this other cook going to get all this done when I can barely get my three things done. But then eventually they're that cook who's getting all this stuff done mm-hmm. um, because they grow and they are able to do more. Um, awesome. So we manage it that way. And then also, um, I don't know, by giving people what they need, a lot of it's, by observing mm. who they are and what they want mm. um, and just watching them and what motivates them. Um, you know, some people need to be yelled at or fussed at. Some people need like a quiet, calm chance to talk it out at the end of the night. Some people need um, to not be allowed to participate in something. Like if you're not going to help us clean up because you're, you know, shirking your work and you're in the bathroom and then you're on your phone and then you're doing whatever. And, and I know you're intentionally avoiding cleanup when we're almost done, you don't get to come in and cross the finish line with us. You're not helping. You're, you're done. You can go home. Um, we're all going to finish this together. Um, and it's a matter of kind of how you, I don't know, maybe it's psychological uh, manipulation. I don't know, but I think that's what leadership is, I guess. Emotional intelligence and social intelligence and, and taking the time to really know your employees and customize your leadership to, to their, their needs and holding them to their standards and just, you know, communicating. I think it comes back to communicating and knowing how to customize your communication to that, this, that specific person's needs and abilities, I guess. Um, yeah. Awesome. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during an interview? Uh, well, the first thing I look for now, I'm actually interviewing right now. So if anyone out there is looking for uh, work, I'd love to have some cooks, um, <laughs> is, uh, is whether or not someone, uh, I look for whether or not I think they're going to fit into our culture, first of all, um, because 
even the things that I don't like about our culture and things I'd like to change, it still is what it is now. And this is not going to be successful for either one of us if you don't fit into our culture. So um, I look for kind of mannerisms and level of good humor and, uh, you know, like you said, emotional intelligence, things like that. Um, and then I, um, we have an open kitchen, so there's, uh, there's certainly a, a professionalism factor involved. Um, and then, um, I ask people point blank. I tell them exactly what their job is going to entail, uh, likely what the pay range is. And I make sure that they actually want to do it. Mm. Um, because I don't Honestly. like hiring people that don't, I mean, I think it's amazing the number of people that will go on an interview who don't actually want this job when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, and if you don't want this job, like there's never, there's not enough money in this line of work. There are better, less difficult ways mm-hmm. to earn a, <laughs> you know, a menial, uh, <laughs> compensation. So I, well, I wish that was different and hopefully someday, uh, my peers and I can change that. So that's not no longer true. Um, you know, if you want to make $13 an hour, there are ways to do it that do not involve uh, cooking brunch at 6 a.m. after you just finished dinner the night before or <laughs> taking the trash out or cleaning the grease trap. You know, so but if you can understand how all those things tie into producing this food, then then that's that's who we want. Awesome. Uh, what is the current challenge you're currently you know dealing with and how are you dealing with that challenge? Uh, well, I have a big staffing crunch coming up. I have a couple people who are going on to do other things, which um, I, I think is great. And I have a lot of young people who are going to follow a passion and travel or, or whatever. And so um, I kind of started looking and saying like, wow, and you know, in three months I might be here by myself. So um, instead of waiting and saying, well, we can't afford to hire people right now. Um, I've started the interview process now mm. and just assuming like, well, maybe we'll be overstaffed for two months and we'll hit our savings a little bit and it'll be challenging. But at least then in three months, we won't be, um, completely screwed. Uh, we'll be able to maintain our level of consistency and professionalism. So that's you know, my biggest challenge right now is staffing. You might be having somebody on staff, you know, your uh, labor expenses might be up now, but when you take the time to have that overlap to train people, uh, you're probably going to end up saving money because of all the mistakes that will happen. And, you know, like you were, you know, tired when you, you know, put out all those desserts that had the wrong topping, like these things all cost money. They, they affect the business. And in the long run, uh, when you're doing things sloppy, when you're doing things wrong, when you're making mistakes, that, that all occurs or, or accrues, sorry, uh, over time. It adds up. Well, yeah. Uh, so and, uh, breaking even if and, not and a saving couple money. bad nights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and a couple bad nights will, uh, will, will wreck some of your best employees too. Mm-hmm. And they won't want to do it anymore. Exactly. Um, and so you have to kind of ensure against that not happening. It's not fair to them just because somebody else leaves and you're not prepared for it, that now they have to have, you know, a terrible week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they all have stuff. I think of my life is fairly complicated. I've got two little kids. I've got, you know, a house and it has old, it's old. It has problems. <laughs> the things I need to work on, the things I need to do. And, um, but I try to think like, well, everyone else has that same stuff going on. Like even if they're 20 and they don't have the problems that I have, they still have challenges in their life and you can't expect them to just drop everything. Um, I think it, uh, maybe Danny Meyer or maybe, uh, Eric repair was like, said, um, this doesn't have to be the most important thing in your life. It needs to mo- be the most important thing in your life for the six hours you are here. Mm. So, um, you know, you don't have to live the restaurant the way I live the restaurant, but during dinner on Friday night, you do have to live that, um, from five to 10, this is the most important thing in your life. And, okay. um, and if that means you can't look at your phone or you can't talk to a certain person cause you know, they're a distraction then that's what that means. Yes. Um, 
I love it, man. I love it. What is one thing yeah. besides food your restaurant does really well that separates you from other restaurants? Uh, I, I think we do, we get like the kind of friendly neighborhood vibe. I think we get that right. Um, and a lot of that comes from hiring people within the community. Um, and that's intentional. Um, saying, well, you know what, you, you already have a large group of friends. Why don't you come? Mm. Maybe you're not a skilled bartender. Why don't we teach you how to bartend? Because that's your personality and your network is more important to me than whether or not you exactly. already know how to make a gin and tonic. Absolutely. Oh man. So smart. And, uh, has that, like, how long does it take to get people up to par? Would you say like how long, you know, when's your return on investment for hiring the person, not the skill come back to you? I don't know. I think it takes a couple of months at least. Um, but then they're there, you know, they're mm. going to stay, mm. um, because they're tied in now gotcha. and, um, and, and they fit in as opposed to, you know, I could take a job far away from where I live and for more money, but I, I, I wouldn't be, after two years, I'd be looking around. Got it. Um, so what is probably, I don't know, two, three months. Awesome. What is one book we must read, uh, to be a better leader or a better restaurant owner? Oh man, there are a lot of books, um, <laughs> but, uh, I, the, the, uh, what's it called? Paul Bertoli cooking by hand. Okay. Um, it's mostly just about food, but the, the emotion that he brings to it, um, there's a, a passage in there called letter to my newborn son. Um, and it's about, uh, making balsamic vinegar in this tradition and then putting a barrel in the rafters with his son's uh, name etched in the wood and how the vinegar will age over time and how he will enjoy a different parts of his life. And the, the emotional connection to food and its importance in our lives will uh, <laughs> bring you to tears and uh, especially that letter, but um, to be it's, it's, it's in toxic and uh, to help you really grab on. And, and, and when you're, when you're feeling shook and doubtful about the trajectory of your career and your life to have someone uh, write this thing that's so powerful that, that so much resonates with why you started doing this to begin with uh, is uh, something that's hard to pass up. Yeah, and these books are so great to read because I, I think young people that, that are passionate about food, they know they want to make a career or they still haven't really figured out why they love it. And, um, and you know, the, the different layers that are potential when you really dive into other people's stories and what they've learned. And you can help develop your purpose, your reason for doing the work you do through the stories of other people. And that will help you get the clarity that you'll need to open and, you know, manage and develop those core values. Those, those things that are, are going to be important to your business. Uh, great stuff. I and maybe that. I'm crazy, but I also would rather, I mean, I think you can get through a lot more books if you don't focus on reading a whole book. Um, you get what you need from it and you put it down and you maybe come back to it later. I think that, yeah. Uh, you know, this kind of studious idea that you have to finish a book. Um, you're a grown up. You can do whatever you want. Um, but I, I can read 50 cookbooks if I just read the intro acknowledgements and then all the, the non recipe pages. Um, I don't need to know what uh, Mario Batali is putting in his tomato sauce, but I do want to know why he opened Babo. And if you read all the individual passages, then you'll find that out yeah. um, and you'll learn about how they think. And that is something that is uh, helpful. I mean, all that other stuff, that's what the index is for. Uh, come back to it when you need yeah. it, reference it, but just get the, the stories, the, the purposes, the reasons, uh, you know, the, all that stuff can really help you get that clarity in what you do. What is one piece of te technology you're using in your restaurant that, you know, is improving your communication, your marketing, your efficiency, your profitability, uh, and just making you a better restaurant in general? Uh. 
I don't know. I struggle with technology. I actually just did a lesson on this last night for my class. And part of the lesson is that I'm, I'm looking. Um, I'd like to open another restaurant, which I know means being there less. Uh, so right now, I think that probably my iPhone is uh, instrumental. Um, mm. it, it probably is the hardest working thing in this entire restaurant. Um, but it's my phone and I carry it around. So I'm trying to figure out what is on what technology and, and apps and what things do I use on my phone that I need to get transferred to a tablet that can stay at the restaurant um, and what things can be shared with other people. Um, so aside from your email and like, say your calendar, what's one app that's really helped you on your, on your phone? I mean, I use Google docs uh, for everything. Um, it's always available. It's out there, but like um, ordering uh, spreadsheets for, for costing, um, all that stuff. Um, it's free. It's, it's cloud-based. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't do my life without Google docs. However, I am looking for some kind of big for anyone who listens to this podcast and maybe your blue card or, or whatever. I've looked into some of these services, but, um, I would love to tie together, um, ordering, costing, scheduling, um, all these things that, that, that we spend time on that we use different, um, apps for uh, recipes, all that stuff. So if I want to say, say I want to go through and check off, these are the 60 things we make in this restaurant. And I want the end of the night, I want my cooks to hit a button and say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, down through an app. And then I want that moved, migrated on its own. All the yeses move to a prep list where then they hit the thing on the prep list and the recipe pops up. All right. Um, You're going to check out QSR online in RSI. All right. <laughs> Hopefully that. So will I'm be looking, looking for those for. things. Yeah. The problem is a lot of them are for uh, they for things that are uh, you know if you if you're Chipotle you do the same thing all the yeah. time. You figure out a way that works for mm. you. Everything's set in stone. Because that, we change all the time, we have a lot of data entry issues. So sometimes it's easier just to write it by hand because mm. you don't want the you know you just like I don't I don't I don't want to change this all the time. Um, let me do I don't want to do the data for you. Let me let me try to help you out with that. I'm gonna do some research and see if I can't make some suggestions. Awesome. Um, let's see here. With all the knowledge you currently have, if you could go back in time and just give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, I, I would uh, I would slow down a little bit. I would say, you know, um, hospitality, like you said, there's always going to be an opportunity. So don't take something that you don't think is right for you. Um, don't run from something, you know, run to it. So you always wait around and you just kind of say like, well, I know that I'm doing what I'm good at. I know that eventually an opportunity will present itself. So I don't need to take this, this thing that I don't really want to do. Mm, awesome. Um, if there was one question I could have asked you that would have provided more value to this interview, what would it have been? Oh, I don't know. You asked me a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think you got pretty good into the, the hows and the whys and, and, um, and all that stuff and, and kind of what makes me tick. So Beautiful. I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Well, you've been awesome. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, to join us today. We're going to wrap it up and we wrap it up by uh, having you call somebody out. Who's one person in this industry uh, that you think would be a great guest mentor on the show and, and just, you know, enlighten us like you have today. Uh, have you done Dave Vargas yet? I have not. Oh yeah. You got to call Dave Vargas. Dave Vargas, man, look out. I'm coming after you. And you said you're hiring. Uh, so if you're in the New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maine, you know, within a half hour drive from Newmarket, uh, how can we connect and why should we come join your team? Uh, you can find us through our Facebook page. Probably the easiest way to message on there. Uh, probably what most people use or 
you can email us through our website, uh, joinyourrestaurant.com. And um, I think the reason to come work there is that we're, you know, we let people kind of pursue their own little individual food projects. You want to try something new? Like, let's, let's try it out. We're going to do it in a way where we don't waste a ton of money um, at first, but what you do might be part of the menu um, eventually. And also we, we use good products and we're, we're close knit. We have a good time. So, you know, come down and, and learn a little more about Southern food and local agriculture. All right. Uh, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash two eight six. I'll have the links to everything uh, Chef recommended to us today and how to connect with him all right there in the show notes, the books, uh, the technologies, links right there. And Chef, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us as a guest mentor. There is no questioning you are unstoppable. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have a great day. An awesome interview with an incredible guy, Chef Brendan VC. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, just dropping some bombs of knowledge on us. I had a blast. And uh, I wrote down a few things I just wanted to you know uh, take from this interview that I think uh, just some lessons to leave you with. The first lesson, um, you can't hold people to a standard and then not enable them to uh, deliver on that standard. You can't. You can't say do it like this and then don't give them the resources and the tools to be able to do it the way you want it. So that's a huge. Uh, I mean, a, a huge area where I think we, we all could be a little bit better. And I think we try to hold high standards and then we can't. You know, when things don't come out the way we want them to, or things aren't being done right, ask our, yourself: Am I doing everything I can do? to make sure my people can do what I expect them to do. And oftentimes when they're not, not meeting those standards, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta look in the mirror and ask, is this because of me or is it because of them? And more times uh, than not, you can do something about that situation. So uh, great uh, stuff there. Thank you for, for bringing that up chef today. Awesome. And uh, one thing I love about what chef does, he's always hiring. He doesn't wait to get into a situation where he needs people, uh, you you want to be proactive. You want to always be hiring. And plus, when you're always hiring, you're always leaving yourself open to having incredible people approach you. Uh, you know, if if you have somebody somebody who just has everything you're looking for, um, and they can you know bring everybody else on your team up, why wouldn't you hire them if you don't need them? I mean, you want to create a situation for yourself where the cream can rise. And if you're constantly bringing people onto your team that just have what it takes, and if, if they're like the the example of what you're looking for in an employee, you, you owe it to yourself to leave yourself open to that. And plus, uh, look what happened to Chef uh, when he was spread thin back in his first restaurant and when he was doing this catering project and he was tired he was he was overworked and uh he, he wasn't taking the time to get his mise en place right and what ended up happening was he put the wrong uh topping i think he put a red wine uh vinegar on a, on, a, on a dessert and um that's what happens when we uh you know create those situations for ourselves so don't let it get to that point uh great lesson there and then lastly uh take the time to work on yourself first uh i think chef bc is a great example of what happens when we we work on ourselves first we go uh we go 
inward instead of outward. In, in you know, we work on becoming a person of value, and then when you become a person of value, opportunities come to you. Uh, and then take the right opportunity. Don't just take the first opportunity. What Chef BC did, he took the right opportunity that allowed him to do what he wanted to do, something that was important to him. He, he developed clarity for himself, and then he was able to do it. And when you when you do things. Uh, Right. When you take time to do things right for the right reasons and, and the right opportunities, you're, you're going to m- make success much more likely. So all beautiful things. Uh, I love talking to you today, Chef BC. Thank you so much for joining us. And like always, guys, please do reach out to me on Facebook at slash Restaurant Unstoppable. You can shoot me an email, Eric with a C at Restaurant Unstoppable. Tweet me at Eric Cacciatore. Uh, I love connecting with you. And also, you can set up a one-on-one chat. If you just have some ideas, if you want to get some thoughts out, maybe you want help connecting with the right people, I can help you with that. Or I can just uh, maybe just give you some feedback, maybe offer some suggestions. Who knows? But I do love connecting with my guests. Uh, It is the best part about doing this is just connecting with so many amazing people. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 101 to find the links to to set up that free 15-minute chat with me. Uh, Those chats, believe it or not, help me. When I listen to your pain points, then I can get people on the show to make this this podcast a little bit better. Uh, And keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming if you have left one. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for your support. All right, guys. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.